Welcome to Any Matters. I'm Daniel Rothberg, a reporter for the Nevada Independent. I'm joined today by Dr. Kristen Averett, the president of the Desert Research Institute. Dr. Averett came to the Desert Research Institute from Boulder, Colorado in July 2017 after a long career working on Western water issues and climate change. In pursuit of our mission to provide reader-supported, nonpartisan news and information, the Nevada Independent sometimes accepts sponsorships of events and the podcast. Sponsors have no input into topics or content. This episode of Indie Matters is sponsored by the Nevada Mining Association. Before we start, I want to do a quick plug for the pod. If you've not done so, please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Also be sure to tell your friends, neighbors, and countrymen that the Indie Matters podcast is chock full of interesting information on topics that matter to them, and they should be listening too. Thank you, Dr. Averett, so much for being on the podcast. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. So you have been in this role for about two years now. You started in July 2017. I'm curious, can you just sort of tell us what it's been like, what what the last two years have sort of, what have been sort of the big takeaways for you in the last two years? Right. Well, I have to say it's been pretty amazing. I think, you know, the people here at DRI, what I knew of DRI coming in, it's, there's, there's so much more under the hood uh, to the research that's being done here and the impact that we have on Nevada and its and society more broadly and really globally. And uh, that's been just a really pleasant surprise. I just feel like I'm constantly learning the new things that the faculty are doing here. And I think one of the really exciting things is we have new directions and a lot of enthusiasm in the Nevada system of higher education. And you have a whole cadre of new presidents and we get along, we all talk to one another and we're really trying to figure out how to collaborate and how to build that system of higher education um, at, together and really, really, you know, hit some new strategic goals that have been outlined by the chancellor. And, and it's really fun for DRI to be really part of the value proposition of mm-hmm. the system of higher education and not just an asterisk or an afterthought. So. I think for some people, they hear the name Desert Research Institute and they wonder, like, what exactly is that? You know, like, I think people sort of know, have a general sense of what UNR does, what TMCC does, what UNLV does. But can you sort of just give our audience a little sense of what DRI's main mission is and where it kind of fits into NG? Right. So we really are focused on environmental sciences, and we built our core capabilities around understanding our air, water, earth, and ecosystem resources. So it's really about understanding the natural world around us. But DRI is so much more than that. And I think the thing that really surprises people is we are a cutting-edge science and technology enterprise. We are deploying drones. We're using advanced, high-performance computing, data analytics to really understand the world that's around us, to observe it, and not just not just look at everything that's, that's around us, but you know, look at what might happen in the future. Mm-hmm. And and it's 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 pretty amazing what we're actually doing here at the institution. I think one of the things that I always find amusing about DRI and what I've heard over and over again when I started is like, oh, you know, you're a hidden gem in the state of Nevada. You're the best kept secret in Enshi. And you know, everybody loves being called best or a gem, but I'm not so crazy about <laughs> hidden and secret. And yeah. these are things that we need to change. I also hear a lot of Oh, I love DRI. And I'm like, what do you love? I have no idea. And so because people just don't understand exactly yeah. what we're doing. Right. And so that's something that we're really trying to trying to change is tell the story and talk about what we specifically do and how it impacts people in Nevada. So what is it that you – I mean, how, how do you sort of make that change? How do you sort of go from being a secret gem to just – a gem. <laughs> well, it's you know, I'm really glad you asked that question because I think this this really speaks to a problem 
or really a, a challenge in science in general mm-hmm. is just science communication and science engagement and talking about what we do and really connecting science and technology to society and what people care about. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you, you know, I, I'm out there pounding pavement, pavement. I'm talking to a lot of different people about what we do, talking about the stories of impact. But I'm really trying to encourage our scientists to get out there and to talk about it as well. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, if you're you're an attorney or, you know, you're, you're a doctor, you know, you don't just, if you're an attorney, you know, I, I could say, hey, what do you need? But I'm not going to just handle you a contract written in legalese and say, okay, go off, have fun. Uh, you know, an attorney really works with you to understand the, understand what's happening and brings you along. And I think as scientists, we don't have practitioners in science. And mm-hmm. so we really need to be, we really need to be out there ourselves uh, talking about what we're doing, connecting with society and connecting with people and letting them know why science matters and mm-hmm. why it's important. Well, why does it matter? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> so I think uh, it matters on so many different levels. Yeah. I think there's so much, particularly environmental sciences right mm-hmm. now, it connects with so many different parts of our society. I mean, anything that you can think of, there's an environmental angle there. I yeah. mean, at DRI, we have over 40 different disciplines that are represented. And that's for there's, there's good reason for that. The world around us, that our air, water, earth, and ecosystem resources, it touches on everything that's really important to us. And I think it's really important, at least from my perspective, that we at DRI, we're connecting the science and the technological innovations and our discoveries and what we're doing here with, again, with the things that matter Mm -hmm. to people. And so that means, you know, going out, talking to decision makers, talking to members of the community about how what we're doing has an impact on on what they're doing day to day, but also how what we're doing can help inform their decisions. You know, I'm not saying science is the number one driver of a decision, but why information that we can convey might be useful for them. What's a specific example of that? sort of how DRI science might be applied to actual decision-making or policy in Nevada? Okay, well, you know, right now there's uh, there's quite a bit going on in the legislature as it, re- as it relates to water, for mm-hmm. example. And you, there's a lot of, of, of assumptions about water resources in our state. And this is a place where DRI, we, at one point in time, there were more hydrologists working at DRI than at any other academic institution wow. in the country. And so that's a huge resource. So if there are questions that require a science-based decision to be made about water resources, whether surface water or groundwater, we, we can provide the experts to provide that kind of information to those that are making the decisions around public policy. And I know, so like one example that's come up in my reporting a little bit is some of the stuff around the Humboldt River. Mm-hmm. The Humboldt River is one of the many rivers in Nevada or in groundwater basins that's overappropriated. There, there are more rights to water than there's sort of actual water flowing through the river. Right. And that has caused, especially during the drought, that caused a lot of problems because you had sort of people at the end of the river who were not getting their deliveries. They sued. It's become a, a sort of a huge regulatory issue for the state. But DRI has been involved in some modeling there, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, what I love about the Humboldt example is it's not just DRI scientists going out, doing some modeling, and coming back and just handing off the models mm-hmm. and leaving. The Humboldt, the work in the Humboldt is incredibly important because it's been uh, a connection between the stakeholders and the scientists. Mm-hmm. And I think that approach to research can be incredibly impactful because I can go 
say, hey, you know, okay, here's the problem. Go back to my laboratory, go back to my computer, generate some science that I think is going to be useful, hand it off and leave. But this, mm-hmm. the Humboldt project has been really stakeholder driven and it's really been about connecting with people on the ground and about what they care about and what they think is important and then tailoring the science so that it's really mapping to what the needs are there. And right. that to me is really a great model for the way uh, applied sciences can can really help to move the ball forward and to help mm-hmm. with, with progress in these really sticky situations like yeah. overappropriation of water rights. So obviously climate change is a huge issue. It affects a lot of different things from water to wildfire. And just uh, given the fact that it's a s- sort of systemic problem, it affects pretty much everything in the earth sciences to some extent, maybe not everything, but, <laughs> but most, a lot of things. Uh, I'm just curious, you know, how DRI is involved, if it's involved in some of this sort of climate science on climate change, and what are some of the examples of of where you guys are looking? Right. So, you know, you're dead on, though. Mm -hmm. Uh, Climate does touch on so much of what's happening in environmental sciences because we're really seeing significant changes to our landscapes, our water resources, and it's impacting air quality and, and the like. And across the DRI enterprise, there are a lot of people that do research that is either directly or even indirectly related to climate variability and climate change. So, for example, we host an ice core laboratory that's a state-of-the-art facility. There's nothing like it anywhere in the world. And what they do in that laboratory is they take ice cores from the Antarctic and from Greenland, and they slow. And these ice cores are up to a million years old. Yeah. And they slowly melt the ice cores. And if you've ever seen, you know, you look at a piece of ice, there's air bubbles in it. Mm-hmm. Well, those air bubbles, they actually are snapshots of the atmospheric conditions at the time that the ice formed. So if wow. you have a million-year-old piece of ice and you slowly melt it, you release the air bubble, they're actually, to, they're actually able to, to record in real time what the atmospheric composition was. And by slowly melting through a core of ice, they can actually create the wiggles and wobbles that show the changes in the composition of the atmosphere over the last million years. Wow, that's wild. It is it's so that's, amazing. It, there are sort of carbon data? It or? Actually, what they're, they don't even, ha- they do do carbon dating on some of these, but re- I think one of the, the seminal pieces of research that came out of this laboratory was the million year record of changes in atmospheric carbon dioxide concentrations over the last million years. So you see the peaks and valleys that were associated with glacial and interglacial cycles. And then you combine that with the observed level, you see how mm-hmm. much higher today atmospheric CO2 conference. Uh, excuse me, atmospheric CO2 concentrations are relative to the past. And that work was done here at DRI. Okay, wow. And those sam- where were those samples collected? So they were from the Arctic, and they're from Greenland, and they're large international scale projects where they're drilling up ice cores and then transporting them to places like DRI for analysis. Yeah. So, you know, we have people looking at ancient climate change, if you will, mm-hmm. and ancient climate variability. Right. But then we also have, we're, we're home to the WRCC, which is the Western Regional Climate Center. Mm-hmm. There's only six regional climate centers in the entire country, and we host one here at our DRI facility in Reno. And the WRCC provides information that's relevant to, both, to more on the near term and kind of seasonal scale of climate variability and change. Yeah. So what do we need to do with re- as it relates to drought? Uh, things like mudslides and landslides or floods. So it's kind of the natural hazards and extreme weather side of the climate equation. Yeah. So we really cover the whole gamut of issues yeah. uh, related to climate. What are some of the challenges in communicating on climate change? Because I could see how someone might say, okay, well, you guys are showing that climate has changed for hundreds of millions of years. 
Right. Well, I think we're so, when it comes to science and, and where, what gets people really interested mm -hmm. in science, it's the questioning. It's, it's what you've, it's what you've experienced in your environment. You know, I, I grew up in the, uh, on the ocean yeah. and where'd you grow up? Uh, mostly in California, oh, but my cool. dad was in the Navy. So, you know, I bounced around, right. but it was always yeah. by an ocean until <laughs> somehow I ended up playing. Look, yeah, actually oh, I was cool. in San Diego for cool. a bit. It's kind of nice. And, and, you know, I was really inspired by that and it was the questioning and the unknown. Mm -hmm. And, but it was also just, it's, it's right in front of you. You know, right. it's, it's so much of it's right in front of you. And I think climate change can be very abstract. And we're now at the point where it's easier to connect messages around climate change with, with folks because they're seeing the changes on the ground. Right. But I can completely understand how when the first indicators of climate change, which you couldn't see right in front of you, <laughs> but were really kind of and kind of hidden signals, I could see why it was really a challenge to communicate it to the public because it was hard to see. Yeah. But now we're seeing it all over the place. And it's not just isolated to the Arctic and the Antarctic. We are seeing it in our backyard. What are some of the examples of uh, climate change in Nevada? So in our state, temperatures over the last 100 years have warmed by about 2 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm -hmm. uh, we're seeing an increase in the rate of temperature rise because over the last 50 years, it's been about two and a half degrees of warming. Uh, we can expect additional warming as we move forward, but that warming manifests in different ways. So for example, uh, we've seen over the last decade or so an increase in the base elevation of the snow. So essentially, you know, snow level is getting a little bit higher. We have more rain, more precipitation falling as rain as opposed to snow, and that has implications for water resources because the mm -hmm. snowpack really is a natural reservoir. Right. We're seeing changes in the timing and the nature of wildfires. I mean, there's no longer just a wildfire season. It's just wildfire danger constantly. Right. Uh, so there are a lot of changes that changes that we're seeing. We, and we can expect more impacts as we move forward. Do, do you think there, there are any areas where there, you know, and this doesn't have to just be climate, where there should be sort of more research done in Nevada um, that could inform decision-making by policymakers? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think on the climate issue in particular, because it does touch on so many things, you know, climate is one of those where it's, it's adding a lot of risk into an equation mm -hmm. and a lot of vulnerabilities. And part of that is because of the uncertainty about what's happening. And, you know, a lot of people talk about climate is bringing us into a quote, unquote, new normal. And I don't think it's a new normal. I think the new normal is abnormal. It's really upsetting climate change, even though we might have a good idea of where we might be in the long term with respect to a change in climate and where it might be taking us. We don't know about the wiggles and wobbles in our climate and our weather that mm -hmm. might happen in between those two, those two points. And there's a lot of uncertainty in there and a lot of risk. And I think that's a really important factor that we need to introduce into the, the planning equation and that scientists at DRI can help with when it relates to any of our natural resources. I mean, it can be our energy resources, it can be our water resources, it can be, if we're just looking at uh, wildland urban interface development, there are a mm -hmm. lot of different places where that connects. Yeah. And I think, uh, but writ large, we're already doing a lot of the advising and helping with the assessments of, of water resources, for example, of mm -hmm. the landscape. Uh, and of these. And so it's just how do we introduce some of these complications and how do we bring that into the dialogue and help to inform those that are really the ones that are in the decision-making positions. Do you worry at all ever? I remember reading a book sort of about, it was, a, it was about geologists, but it was talking about the trend of fewer and fewer geologists going out in the field and more doing sort of these analytics behind computers and things like that. Do you worry at all that with 
so much more technology, which is great, and imagery software and uh, visualization software that you know researchers or investigators are not on the ground as much. You know, it's that's a great question. I mean, I think ground truthing observations is absolutely is is fundamental and it's mm-hmm. part and parcel of environmental sciences. Right. And to be honest, as an environmental science, I mean, I. I love being out in the field. Yeah. I mean, that's what start. That's what got me right. engaged in it. But what's interesting is this new generation of scientists. You're getting kids that are really interested in exploring the environment through, through science, through kind of technological interfaces. It's <laughs> kind of the gamers, etc. Right. And so you need a little bit of everything. But you definitely still need people that are out in the field that yeah. are ground to truthing what's yeah. happening. And uh, and you still need people that are going out there and picking up a rock for real, right? Yeah. And and really analyzing it, etc. But right. there's that opportunity yeah. to, to broaden the folks that you can actually yeah. bring into the fold by expanding the ways yeah. that people can connect with the environmental sciences. Yeah. And obviously that's true not yeah. just in science. It's true in my in my field in journalism. There's fewer and fewer journalists, you know, sort of ground truth thing and more. But and then mm-hmm. at the same time it does open up these great opportunities to work with data and things like that that we just didn't do, you know. 30, 40 years ago. Oh my gosh. I, you know, absolutely. And that that's the one thing is data underpins so much of what we do. I mean, mm-hmm. it, when you have really quality data that can help with, it can help you with projections about what might be happening around us, yeah. right? And there are so much data, there are so many data points that are collected as it relates to, to, to the environment around us, mm-hmm. but we don't have the warm bodies ne- necessary to actually analyze those data. And that's mm-hmm. why things like data analytics are so important because it can help us to archive all the information that is being collected to help us provide insights that we never would have known about before. Right. So that's what I think is really powerful. What's DRI's involvement, if, if anything, in sort of the non-university aspect of this, but sort of training younger Nevadans in STEM and science? Um, maybe, I don't know if you guys work with Washoe County School District or down in Vegas with the Clark County School District, but... Right. So, you know, there's a couple things in there, and I think it's just some general background on DRI. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're one of the eight systems, or sorry, excuse me, we're one of the eight institutes in, within the Nevada system of higher education. We do not grant degrees, and our researchers are not tenured. They don't receive funding from the state. They actually go out and raise their own uh, resources to support themselves and their, their laboratories, primarily through federal grants and contracts. Right. And it, there's you know there's pros and cons to that, but the big pro is it allows our folks to be really nimble, really innovative, and pursue really unique ideas. Mm-hmm. That said, we actually do support a number of graduate students who matriculate at UNR and UNLV who come to the state of Nevada to work with our DRI scientists because they are among the best in the world. Yeah, we also I'm really one of my the first things I did here was uh, create an office of education mm-hmm. because we do have education even beyond graduate education. We have a program uh, called Science Alive or Green Box program that is really focused on STEM issues. Yeah. And we deploy these, they're literally big green suitcases out into the schools for any teacher, any K through 12 teacher that wants it. And they're free to them. And these Green boxes focus on curriculum that are based on research that is done here at DRI. And it's not just also just sending these green boxes out to the teachers. It's also about training the teachers to teach the curriculum. Yeah. And it's great, too, because it also allows us to develop, uh, for example, we're working on a suite of green boxes uh, supported by a generous grant from Tesla Mm -hmm. focused on robotics. 
because that's something we need that for the workforce training. We want that in K through 12 for kids to get exposed to see, you know, who's going to be the next Elon Musk, right? right. And uh, we're able to do that and develop these re- these assets really quickly and then send them out into the schools. Yeah. So really proud of that program. And that's really the cornerstone of our Office of Education that we're really building off of that project. So, yeah. so you brought up funding a little bit, and I wanted to ask you, well, first, I guess I'm curious, can you just kind of paint a picture of DRI's funding portfolio? Like what percentage comes from the state, the federal government, that kind of thing? Right. So we are about 78% of our resources come from contracts and grants. The majority of those are from federal resources. Okay. The vast majority of those are from federal resources. We get about 18% of our funding from the state mm-hmm. uh, through our state appropriation. And then the remainder is from private funding and just a, you know, a couple other smaller resources. But by and large, our, our resources come from the federal enterprise. Right. I think... Uh, you know, the federal coffers, while we have been, our researchers are inc- very good and incredibly successful at securing federal grants yeah. and contracts. And we're very fortunate in that. That said, the competition is becoming stiffer because the funding has been relatively flat from the federal government for research. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, salaries go up, the cost of uh, the cost of research goes up, et cetera. Right. And so one of my priorities is to really make sure that we're diversifying the revenue stream so that way our researchers can pursue their best ideas yeah. and that we, they can continue to innovate in these really, really fan, fan, fantastic ways. So, you know, we're really trying to work with the state and figure out, okay, how, where can we really plug in with the state? Where can we help with these assessments and help them with uh, with the, some of these sticky questions that, that where they might need a science-based solution, where we can right. help provide that science? Uh, we're working to expand uh, our our portfolio of philanthropic donors and mm-hmm. really working with foundations on what they might care about mm-hmm. to try and help with the resources as well. And then, of course, one of my priorities is connecting with private enterprise. We have something called the Desert Research Corporation, which is a for-profit arm of our DRI foundation. And in the last year or so, we've spun off our first two companies oh, wow. out of DRI based on intellectual property developed at the institution. And it's a very unique model, and it's something that, you know, we're, it's a little different. Nobody else in NSHE is quite doing it this way, and we're really excited about it. So, yeah. again, it's trying to do things in a different way. And it goes to connecting with society, too, because it's, it's, it's connecting with the business enterprise and that value proposition of economic development in the state. Yeah. It's pretty exciting, actually. So... Given the amount of the percent, the percentage that comes from the federal government and contracts, and looking at just the general dysfunction in Washington and Congress, has that been a problem for DRI either under this administration or during the shutdowns under the last administration? Well, I think you know the one thing is you know the president's uh, budget just arrived and. Last year, if you look at what was actually funded in terms of science, mm-hmm. science, technology, research, et cetera, across the different agencies, the the president's request was kind of DOA, and what was realized yeah. was pretty pretty static relative to previous years. And I, I, you know, I'm optimistic that we'll see the same thing this year because. You know, there are a lot of science is it's incredibly important across the entire portfolio right. of all the agencies. And I think uh, there's a lot of really smart people that understand the value. And uh, so we're really fortunate to see that. David can attest, uh, our photographer, David Calvert, <laughs> David. is here. Um, <laughs> and he can attest to the fact that I ask everybody this question. Yeah. <laughs> um, but. <laughs> But I'm curious in in the last two years, are there any is there anything that you regret, like any decisions that you made or any sort of I don't know, anything you would have done differently? Oh, that's a that's a good one. 
And David's heard a lot of answers, I'm sure, too. And so <laughs> and he's I, also not heard a lot of, I won't answer that question. So, <laughs> no, I think, um, I, I think this is a, a challenge that every new enthusiastic leader has coming in to any organization is there are things that you that one sees that it's like, wow, we need to go that direction. This is so exciting. And it's just having the patience to hold back a little bit to make sure that everybody around you agrees and that the whole team is behind you. And so I think, you know, it's it's. I wouldn't say it's a mistake. It's kind of it's it's kind of a, it's a perennial issue, I think, mm-hmm. in anybody coming into these kind of jobs and just making sure that everybody is on board with the direction that you want to take. And even if they aren't, at least they understand why and yeah. that it's part of a of a broader vision. And so I think uh, making sure that I understand I that I I know the culture here because it is truly unique at DRI mm-hmm. relative to other places because people here do bring in their own salaries. They raise the money that really supports the organization, you know, it's, it's really important to be transparent and about how resources are being expended and that people understand why you're doing certain things. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and that's just a, a cultural thing and getting used to the culture. And that's part of also bringing the institution along as we, you know, I'm not going to say change directions, but as we try to move into a future where we want to be, uh, you know, make sure that we have the, a large enough enterprise that we truly can deploy people really quickly to address the the rapidly emerging challenges that are facing us. Well, on the flip side of that, uh-huh. I'll ask you, wh- what what do you think you're sort of most proud of in the last two years since you since you started here? Well, there's a couple of things. I think the Office of Education is it's I'm really proud of that because I really mm-hmm. want to stitch DRI into the fabric of NG, and mm-hmm. it also pretends of you know something that we are considering on the campus, which is perhaps granting PhDs. And just PhDs, I'm not, you know, just PhDs possibly exploring joint PhDs, but I, I think we can we can really bring value to higher education, mm-hmm. and I think we can do it in a more meaningful way. And so I'm quite proud of that. I think the second thing that I'm proud of is we're going to fairly shortly be releasing an ethics policy across that, that, as I understand it, is unique to any academic institution. Granted, we're relatively small, but yeah. it is institution-wide. And uh, about this time last year, there was a lot, there were a lot of uh, kind of Me Too-related issues that emerged that were specific to the sciences in terms of field work, what would happen or might transpire at conferences or while on travel. And so we took a close look at models that were afforded by the AAAS, et cetera, mm-hmm. about what are best practices to make sure that you don't have these disproportionate power dynamics playing out in academia. And we've developed an ethics policy around that and around what's acceptable and what's not. And I'm quite proud of that because it is truly unique. And yep. When's that coming out? I'm hoping that it will be completely done in the next month or two. And um, cool. yeah, and it's it's something also that uh, we worked with our faculty senate on, and it mm-hmm. was it was truly a, a comprehensive and collaborative document that really reflects, I think, where science is and how we're yeah, and what we need to be doing to make sure that we are appropriately diverse and making sure that we're bringing everybody along uh, mm-hmm. on the science journey. Do other NCHI institutions have that or? No, that... I don't believe so okay. at this point. In fact, I'm not sure that any university in the country has one at this point, cool. university-wide. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah. I think David, our photographer David Calvert, is raising his hand, I think, is a question. <laughs> <laughs> David. What can the other NCHI institutions learn from DRI? 
So I think DRI has a lot to bring just because we have a unique model. And I think the entrepreneurial nature of the research we do and just it, we're not, I hate to say this, held back by tenure. So if you're a tenured, and I've written on this actually before, is if you're a tenured scientist, you know, there are certain goals that you have to hit. You know, bring in so many, so many dollars. You need to hit so many proposals. You need to have so many publications. You need to, you know, your reviews have to be so great from so many students. And I think one of the things that has made DRI so successful is that we don't have tenure and our researchers truly can think outside of the box and they can be really nimble in what they want to pursue. And so there's real value in uh, having, a, at, through a system, having folks that are focused on the educational enterprise and having folks that are really pushing the, pushing, you know, at the cutting edge on the research side. Because that cutting edge of research, that's what, helps you and, and uh, to get and maintain your R1 status, which UNLV and UNR just got, which is great. <laughs> it's fantastic for all of us. Uh, and, and But that's what's made DRI fantastic. I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that according to the statistics from the National Science Foundation, DRI is in the top 5% of all institute, academic institutions in the country in Earth and atmospheric sciences, top 5%. That's out of over 400 organizations. Oh, I didn't know that the National Science Foundation did those yeah, rankings. Yeah, they're rankings based on uh, essentially your, your expenditures because your expenditures of research dollars are the metric of, uh, of productivity. Okay. And uh, it's, let's just say on that list, we're actually higher than UC Davis and MIT right now. And any time you're higher than MIT, you better talk about it, right? <laughs> and of course, that's in our specialty, in our specialty right. areas. Right. But that's, that is something, you know, we hear really, I feel like I've heard so many negative things about education in this state. And I think DRI is something we should be proud of. And it's something yeah. that we should really be embracing that, wow, we have this amazing Gem, not hidden gem. This amazing gem in our. How much state. of that is hydrology? Actually, I'm curious because I I just feel like there aren't. I don't know. I feel like hydrology is one of those areas that hasn't been fully explored. I, I just get that sense. But yeah, I, no, I, that's I a really be, good question. Is, is yeah. sort of evolving pretty quickly from, you know, where we were maybe in the 1950s or 60s. Right. So uh, a lot of our hydrologists are based. Actually, we have hydrologists on both of our campuses, yeah. but we have a, quite a few that are based down on our southern campus in Las Vegas. I will say that when the recession hit, mm -hmm. we lost a lot of our hydrologist, our yeah. hydrologists, and so that's what took us from having. That's why we no longer have more hydrologists than any other right. institution in the country. But that is one of the programs that we're really looking to to build out. One of the things that we're considering here at DRI is, you know, what what can we bring to the table thinking about water in our state in a new way yeah. and really focusing on Nevada, not as a corollary to California's thoughts around Tahoe or other states' thoughts around the Colorado River, but what are the unique issues to Nevada that we can help right. to really crystallize science around and really help with, with, with decision-making? That pretty much covers it for me. Is there anything else you want to add? I think, you know, it's a really exciting time right now for DRI, and I've really made it a priority to engage with the community and make sure that we're talking about what we're doing as scientists and how it impacts the state of Nevada. We turned 60 years old this year, and that's pretty exciting. We're going to be having our very first DRI day at the legislature on March 26th. We're also going to be hosting open houses on both of our campuses in May, and I'm really excited about that because we haven't had a large-scale open house on our northern campus in years. And so, again, this is we really want to connect. We don't want to be a secret. We really want to connect with people and connect with society, and I'm really excited about it.
Cool. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. That's all the time we have for this edition of the Indie Matters podcast. We want to know what you think. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, email us at ideas at thenvindie.com. Please check out our site for great news stories every day, thenevadaindependent.com. Thank you.